please pray with me? Father, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who know me know that for the past four years as a side hustle, I've worked with homeschool students. And one of the classes that I've tutored with them is a class that we call Western Cultural History. And one of the semesters we study music history and the other semester we study art history. After exploring Western art and becoming familiar with the various periods and then the various artists in those periods, you get to the point where when you're faced with a painting from a particular era, you can tell who the, author, who the painter is. So if you pick up a Van Gogh, you know it's a Van Gogh. Why? How do you know that? Because as an artist, Van Gogh utilizes similar lines, colors, shading, lighting, etc. And if you want more technical language than that, you can talk to Father Jim or Christine, who are our resident artists. <laughs> One of the reasons that I love preaching at the Easter Vigil is because we take a lot of extra time in our readings to meditate and to hear the works of God in time and space that he's achieved on our behalf. And once you put these events side by side, you begin to see the beauty of them because you can recognize God's handiwork in them. Like an artist who uses similar techniques over the course of his career, God employs similar means of grace in different contexts. Through the particular readings which we heard earlier, there's one constant message which can be summarized by the prayer of humble access, which is something that we'll pray later during the Eucharist. God is a God whose property is always to have mercy. We serve a God who has made the first move toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Tonight is special in three ways. Through our hearing of the readings, we're reminded of the reality of God's saving actions in the past. In our liturgy, we dramatize this reality of God's saving actions. And in the sacraments that are administered tonight, both baptism, the baptism of Jude and the reception of the Eucharist, we receive and partake in the reality of God's saving actions. So let's focus on our readings for tonight. What are they communicating to us here today? We started with the creation and the fall stories. The refrain in the creation story is, and God saw that it was good. There's that discernible pattern in God's creative activity. What he creates is good. But then we read about the fall, a story which shows us that there's no hope inside of ourselves, that we're truly, tr totally broken and truly unable to turn to God of our own volition. If you have a question about this, or if you're not sure that that's true, have a child. <laughs> and if you have had a child, think back to the first few months of that child's life. This is the reality that Caroline and I, but mostly Caroline, have been having to deal with for the past four weeks. In his spiritual autobiography, Confessions, Augustine explains that even when, uh, when he was an infant, he could tell that he was depraved. Well, looking back, he could tell that he was depraved. This depravity that comes from the fall doesn't just affect some people. It affects all of us. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. St. Athanasius, who's one of my favorite, 
church writers tells us that this reality of sin creates a dilemma in our understanding. Because God's property is always to have mercy, and also because sin has consequences which lead to death, in our feeble intellects there appears only two options. Number one, God could forgive our sins and free us from the consequences without doing anything. No sacrifice, no atonement, just forgive and forget by moving on. But that would make God a liar, and it would make him unjust. The second alternative is that God could just leave us to our own devices. We, after all, are the ones who left him, and we chose to be his enemies. But this would violate God's love and compassion. To resolve this dilemma, which wasn't really a dilemma to God, just for our own understanding, God embarked on a mission whereby he bridges the gap between us and him because we can't do it on our own. And we'll talk more about that later. In the foreshadowing of what is to come, we see the first pattern of God's salvific actions on behalf of Adam and Eve, the provision of an animal which is sacrificed on their behalf to cover up their nakedness, which anticipates how God's righteousness is imputed onto us in our justification through baptism. In the flood story, we see that same pattern continue in Noah and the ark. Water is absolutely necessary for life. Apparently, the longest anyone went without water was in 1979 when an Austrian prisoner was forgotten about in his cell for 18 days straight. However, what we see in the immediate context of the flood story is the destructive property of water. If you want to learn more about that, ask someone who's had their house flooded. Or ask a geologist who might tell you about how the Grand Canyon was formed by water erosion over an incredibly long period of time. The flood is clearly a result of man's depravity, yet in it, God saves Noah and his family, using them in his plan to perform an act of what we might call recreation, where he preserves a faithful remnant. As a Latin teacher, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the area where you all are sitting is called the nave, which is the Latin word for boat. We get our word navy or navel from this. So when we gather together as the body of Christ in the church, the picture is of us being preserved in the ark from the outside world, just like Noah and his family was preserved from the watery judgment of his day. Peter utilizes the flood in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22 to speak of the effectuality of baptism. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the, in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, he also, in, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, and in, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt off the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The flood, then, is a picture of the paradox endemic to God's plan of salvation, out of death, life. We see a similar reality in Exodus, when God leads Israel through the Red Sea. The people come out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and pass through the waters. God then makes them a nation, which is an act of recreation, and makes them a royal priesthood, 
And the role of this royal priesthood was to mediate God to the nations and point those nations back to God. In spite of God's great actions on their behalf, Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel still somehow managed to fail. He detailed how God had provided them a type of baptism in the Red Sea, and then he had provided them a type of Eucharist and the manna from heaven, yet they still committed the sins of idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling. Even though this is a sordid negative history that shows the ongoing reality of sin, it also proves the faithfulness of God. Israel had great signs in these saving events and they still did not please God, yet God still pursued them and he went after them. We as the church have the sacraments and we still struggle and suffer similar fates as the Israelites. When we fall, we prove the necessity of God's initiative on our behalf and not our own. And as a result, we can wholeheartedly affirm with Paul in Philippians uh, 1.6 that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our last Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 36, which looks forward to God's restoration of the Israelite people. Interestingly, the author of Ezekiel employs the imagery of water in a strictly sacramental sense. A sacrament, when we speak of it here, is an outward sign that God is working internally. In the sacrament, the physical and spiritual reality are completed and joined together, not bifurcated. In Ezekiel 36, the, spring, the sprinkling of water externally produces a new heart, and it is in this way that the recipients will become the people of God. The consistent pattern is that water is somehow tied to salvation. The new covenant utilizes water too, and that's because it's the same God using the same materials to bring the same salvation. But all of these instances of divine intervention over the course of salvation history in the Old Testament illustrate God providing means of grace for fallen people to have relationship with him, but they're not complete in and of themselves. And what I mean by that is that isolated from the rest of history, they're insufficient. They're pieces of a puzzle, but not the completed picture itself. God's covenants and great acts of the Old Testament have a telos, a trajectory. They're going somewhere. God is on the move. All of those acts lead us to the final solution of the dilemma presented by Athanasius. Christ, the co-eternal member of the Godhead, took on our flesh and dwelt among us. He became like us in every way, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.17. Becoming like us, Christ went to the cross, something that we experienced together last night as we followed his passion journey by praying the stations of the cross. This passion and his death did two things. First, it destroys sin, Satan, and death. Hebrews 2.14 says he shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And 1 Corinthians 15.55, where, O death, is your victory, where, O death, is your sting. But he also restores peace between us and God, mending the broken relationship between creator and creation. Because in dying, Christ destroys death, it could not hold him down. And so Christ fulfills his mission and is vindicated by the resurrection. A new creation is manifested in a parallel structure that we call the church, the ark of salvation. 
And how does one enter this ark? 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. Paul elaborates on this principle in Romans 6. In baptism, we enter into the death of Christ, but by that death, we are united to him and participate with him in his resurrection. Water, the means by which God operates, plays out its life-giving and its destructive properties all at once. In Karl Barth's commentary on Romans 6, he says that it's not the same person who arises from the water as was submerged, and then provides this brilliant and classically Martin Luther quote that baptism is the death of death, poison of poison, and the imprisoning of imprisonment. Your baptism is nothing less than grace clutching you by the throat, a graceful throttling by which your sin is submerged in order that you may remain under grace. Come thus to your baptism. Give yourself up to be drowned in baptism and killed by the mercy of thy dear God, saying, Drown me and throttle me, dear Lord, for henceforth I will gladly die to sin with thy son. The destructive property of water puts to death the old man, and it recreates us anew. The destruction is grace. We're put to death with Christ so that we might be alive to God in Christ. So what's happening here tonight? Two things we're getting ready to do. The first is that we renew our baptismal vows as people who have previously been baptized. And then we baptize Jude into Christ. By renewing our baptismal vows, we're doing what Luther called remembering our baptism. In our culture, we really like the idea of choice. And if you come from an evangelical background, this is why there's so much emphasis on making a decision. The problem, and again, I think this is predominantly a cultural issue, is that often we wrap our feelings up with our decisions. So we emphasize choice, and it works great when we're on an emotional high, but then we go through a period where we don't feel like we meant that choice. Maybe you know people who got rebaptized again, or maybe two more times, or maybe three more times, because they really meant it this time. Baptism, on the other hand, is an objective reality that God acts in our lives and that he is the ultimate cause of our salvation. In the sacrament, there's assurance because it's not based on whether you did enough, chose hard enough, or felt good enough. In the sacrament, God reaches out to you and he says, I did this for you. So by renewing our baptismal vows, we remind ourselves that our salvation is out of our hands and that that is a good thing. This provides an impetus for us moving forward. God has acted, God is acting, and God will act. And he's going to bring to completion what he has begun. In baptism, God justified us, and so we can, we can trust him to continue to sanctify us. But the second thing that we're here to do tonight is to baptize Jude. And I've been excited and thrilled to baptize Jude since before he was born, since before he was even conceived. It's important for us to recognize that sacraments don't work because they're something that we cognitively process or that we somehow mentally can absorb. The most beautiful words I've ever read about communion were penned by a mentally handicapped woman who couldn't possibly have understood the complex theological and philosophical debates surrounding modern theories of how the Eucharist works. If you're curious, she says, I want to eat Jesus' bread. I can't wait until I can eat Jesus' bread and drink Jesus' juice. People who love Jesus are the ones who eat Jesus' bread, 
Jesus' skin and meat turned into the bread, and Jesus' blood and guts turned into juice. That's Jesus' bread and Jesus' juice, and I want to eat it with and drink it with all the other Christians at church because I love him so. Similarly, Jude doesn't understand yet, but tonight God is acting in his life. This action's not contingent on whether he grasps it now. And if we make that the benchmark for God acting, he hasn't acted for any of us because none of us fully understand. In many ways, it's precisely because he can't grasp it that it's such a clear depiction of what grace looks like. It's why Jesus snapped at the disciples who tried to keep the little ones away from him. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In baptism, Jude will be given a grace that he doesn't deserve. And in receiving that grace, he becomes our fellow brother in Christ and a member of Christ's holy church. And as fellow members of the church and co-heirs to the promises of Christ, it becomes our sacred duty to help him always remember his baptism all the days of his life. Maybe you're here tonight to see that baptism, or maybe you just wanted to meet Jude for the first time. (laughs) Or maybe you're just here because it's Holy Week and that's just what you're supposed to do. Either way, tonight is a night for us to remember the power of the resurrection and bringing us new life. It's a time for us to celebrate Christ's victory and to celebrate the fact that Jude is entering God's covenantal people, and of course also to embrace our responsibility to keep him accountable to that calling throughout his whole life. But beyond that, no matter who you are or why you're here, remember your baptism. God was faithful then, he's faithful now, and he'll be faithful in the future. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for acting when we couldn't act, and for saving us when we couldn't save ourselves. We pray that as we go forth from this place tonight, that we might be kindled with the fire of your love, and that we might always remember our baptism. And we also pray for Jude, that as he is brought into your family, that we might surround him, and that we might help him as he grows up, that he might always love you, that he might always serve you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.